0: My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.
1: I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question. How can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. I had the honor of speaking with Captain Paul Watson, President, CEO and founder of Sea Shepherd. If you're not already familiar with Captain Paul Watson, you might recognize him as one of the founding members of Greenpeace. Or you might have seen him and his crew on Animal Planet's popular TV series, Whale Wars. It's an understatement to say that Paul Watson has devoted his life to protecting the planet. He has spent decades standing in front of whalers, confronting marine poachers, and being an outspoken advocate for living in accordance to the laws of ecology. In our conversation, we dive deep into the state of the oceans and discuss the impact of our eating habits on them specifically touching on how farming on land as well as overfishing has impacted fragile marine ecosystems and whether or not seafood can ever truly be sustainable. With many scientists projecting that fish stocks could collapse by the year 2048, Captain Paul Watson's catchphrase, If the oceans die, we die, seems omnipresent. Although Captain Paul Watson does not claim to be hopeful about the future of human life on the planet, He does have some very empowering words for those of us who are hoping for a better future. Paul Watson has to be one of the most inspiring people I have spoken with to date. So I highly encourage you to listen to this fascinating conversation. Captain Paul Watson, this is an absolute honor to have you here with us. Thanks so much for being on the It For The Planet podcast. Oh, thank you. So... thinking about this interview and the state of our oceans um i kind of started to get a little depressed i'm typically a pretty optimistic person but when i started looking at what's been um what the state of the oceans are uh, i did start to get a little worried. um and i think albert einstein put it really well when he said that it's become appallingly clear that our technology has exceeded our humanity and I think that's an accurate description of what we've done with our food system um, and the planet in the last several years. Um, and it's not to say that technology in itself is the problem in all circumstances, but I think when you go from using an axe to chop down a tree to using forest-eliminating machines called harvesters, or you go from a butcher's blade in the hand of a farmer to mechanized deboning, milking, and butchery of animals in factories, or when you go from a fisherman on his boat with a net to now multi-million dollar shipping vessels that use military technology and sonar technology to pinpoint the precise location of fish in the oceans, you do end up with a huge problem. And that problem is the food system that we have today that um, is completely out of balance with the laws of ecology. And it's uh, extracting resources far faster than those resources are capable of, re- capable of replenishing themselves. And with our population growing, uh, we're going to need to extract more resources. So that's the situation we find ourselves. And you know, I'm off to a grim start, but that's really where things are. Um, I'd love to start at the highest level and um, get your thoughts on the state of the oceans and why people should really
2: care about it. The ocean is dying. Uh, there's no uh, other way to put it. And uh, when the ocean dies. We die, we don't live on this planet with the dead ocean, and I don't think people really get that connection. 80, uh, you know, 80% of our oxygen is generated by phytoplankton in the ocean. Since 1950, there's been a 40% decline or diminishment in phytoplankton populations. And the reason for that is that we're disrupting that entire food chain. Uh, whales uh, are the farmers of the ocean. Every day one blue whale defecates about three tons of whale manure into the ocean, uh, very rich in nitrogen and in iron, the primary nutrients for phytoplankton. So when you diminish whale populations, you diminish phytoplankton populations. Phytoplankton sustains uh, zooplankton, which sustains fish all the way up to the top. And in addition, of course, uh, to the depletion, we also have pollution in the form of plastic, uh, chemical, radiation, and sonic and uh, so it's really an all-out war by humankind on the marine uh, environment. And people tend to be very alienated from the, the aquatic environment. It's sort of out of sight and out of mind. And, in fact, we would never, ever allow uh, you know, the way to treat animals on land the way we do in the oceans. It's bad enough on land, but in the ocean, there is no compassion, no empathy at all. There's no difference between a bluefin, uh, you know, like a bluefin tuna... And a cheetah, the one is the fastest uh, species in the ocean. One is the fastest on land. Uh, But we destroy the the bluefin without any thought about it at all. And uh, you know we would never be able allowed to do that with cheetah, for example. So everything in the ocean is is looked upon as a a consumable product. In fact, when I attended the uh, United Nations conference on the environment in Paris, uh, or the you know Cap Twenty One actually, and there was no. They didn't want to talk about the ocean. We had to force it. And because I actually knew the, the man who organized it, we were able to get get it in at the last moment. But it ended up with uh, the fishing companies getting the first place in there because they bought the sponsorship. Mm-hmm. And I'm listening to one representative talking, well, you know, we really have to come to grips with climate change because it's uh, upsetting the movement of the product. That's the way he you know, viewed it. Fish are just a, a product. So... Well, but the ultimate reality is, is that if the fish die, the ocean die. If the oceans die, we die. So there's no other way to put it.
1: Yeah. And you, you said a few different things there in terms of the various causes of why the oceans are dying right now. Um, let's try to you know, break them up into uh, separate categories. I mean, let's, let's start with one that most people may not even think is very obvious, which is the extent to which our food system on land, not even you know pulling fish from the oceans, the farming of animals on land, to what extent is that connected to the oceans? Because most people don't readily make the connection between what a cheeseburger has to do with, uh, with whales
2: dying. And uh, there is a connection. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about that. Well, there's a connection because uh, about 35 to 40% of all of the fish that's caught is not eaten by people directly. It's fed to, uh, to animals to uh, pigs, uh, to chickens, to domestic salmon, to domestic house cats. Uh, We live in a world right now where chickens on factory farms in Europe alone eat more fish than all the uh, albatross and puffins in the world. We live on a planet where um, pigs eat more fish than sharks and where the domestic house cat eats more fish than all of the seals in the North Atlantic Ocean. 2.8 million tons of fish go just for cat food. And it's not even a natural food for the cat, I, t- I tell you right now. If a, if a tuna ever met a cat, the tuna would eat the cat. So it's, you know, it's not a natural food for them. And, uh, <clears throat> but it's all, it's all run by money. There's a lot of money to be made from, from cat food. I mean, we're looking at a billion-dollar industry, many, many billions of dollars. And uh, so as long as—actually, uh, what I call it is the economics of extinction. There is a lot of money to be made from destroying our oceans. And for people who have no sense of vision as to what tomorrow is, that's nothing. They just see to the today, what we're going to make for it. And a good example is a bluefin tuna. One bluefin tuna, its most valuable fish on the planet, is worth about $75,000, one fish. So that kind of price tag on its head, you know, its days are, are numbered. And the companies that are catching the bluefin, they don't care if it goes extinct. In fact, it's good business if it goes extinct. they got like 10 to 15 years' supply of bluefin tuna in their warehouses right now, and Mitsubishi alone has that. And um, so what happens is that say say they stop fishing today. They could continue to sell the bluefin tuna that they have in their warehouses for the next decade but they won't do that, because what happens is if they stop catching the bluefin, the numbers will come up. And if the numbers come up, the value of the, of the fish in the warehouses goes down. And uh, so the more scarce, the more valuable, the more money's to be made. And if it goes extinct, the fish in the warehouse become incredibly, I mean, they can make their own price. And uh, they don't care about tomorrow, because they'll take the profits from that and invest it into something else completely unrelated to fisheries. The problem, there, there are really no fishermen left, there's corporations that uh, have taken this whole thing over. The west coast of Canada, the entire fishing industry is owned by a former used car salesman. You know, so it's all these people. They don't care about if the fish survive or if they don't. And even when you get down to the fishermen, I asked a fisherman in Alaska one time, I said, well, if, if nothing else, why don't you, you know, save the fisheries for your, for your children so that they can be part of it. And he looked at me and said, well, you know, in five years, uh, my mortgage would be paid, and after that, I couldn't give a damn. Now, why does somebody like that have children? well it's because it's what you do mm. you know don't give any thought to it and it's just expected if people really love their children they would be very concerned about it but we don't really have that in our reality we've stepped outside of the the continuum of life which is a biocentric understanding that we know where we came from and we know who we are we know where we're going but society is of an anthropocentric mindset where we forget about the past. We have no idea where we are, and we don't give a thought about where we're going.
1: Yeah, and I think you know part of the problem is that our economic model today is um, is based on short-term profits. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, and you know when we say an animal has value, it only has that value when it's dead. Mm-hmm. And as you pointed out really well, it's it's the more scarce that resource. Um, the more value on that animal or the dead animal and you know part of the problem is also people don't necessarily understand beyond just using fish as feed for livestock you now have factory farm the factory farming system which is which dominates the production of of uh, meat and dairy and eggs in in the world today at least 99 percent of it is producing more greenhouse gases than the entire transportation sector and in a in a way, people don't necessarily think that again has anything to do with the oceans, but it does, because at the end of the day, the oceans are are facing the brunt of uh, the 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 impact of uh, warming temperatures and acidification and and everything that goes along with that. to To what extent in your conversations with ocean experts, is that ever brought in as a factor? Of course, we know climate change is a problem. Are people making those connections, or are the people who are talking about the oceans only very myopically focused on uh, overfishing and uh, and 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 the and the end result of all these problems? Or are they kind of getting to the root of it and saying, if all of us don't start to work together to try to figure out a better system from an economic standpoint, from a food production standpoint, there's really no way to reverse the damage, or at least um, at least halt it, or At least, at least slow it down to some extent. So, how where do things stand today in terms of those conversations?
2: We kill about sixty-five billion animals every year in the in the meat industry. We take many more billions of than that in, in from the ocean. But the impact of the meat industry on the ocean goes far beyond just um, you know contribution of greenhouse gases. Uh, Animal production uh, is probably the leading cause of dead zones in the ocean. Uh, It's the leading cause of groundwater contamination. Uh, You know, pig farms alone are you know are destroying groundwater, especially in places like South Carolina and and that. Um, So people don't really see those 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 connections. Um, But pretty much wherever any river that's going through agricultural land uh, produces a dead zone out uh, out out in the ocean. Because of the um, you know everything, the pesticides and uh, the herbicides and the uh, and the um, the sewage primarily you know the, the the sewage from that, so it's 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 a very difficult situation. But it's hard to really get that across to people again because for the most part people are out of touch uh, with anything to do with ecology. Don't even understand it, you know. Uh, they they have this idea that it's well you know environmentalism uh, means a. Uh, putting your trash in a, in a trash can or recycling or something, then, then they think that, that, uh, that, that that's sort of their contribution. That's all they really, really need to do. Um, one of the most daunting uh, threats right now is uh, n- Norway and Japan uh, have plans and they've already started to do it to uh, what they call harvest uh, zooplankton uh, out of the ocean. We're talking about many millions of tons every year. And now you're striking at the very foundation of the entire food chain in the ocean.
1: And what are they doing that for?
2: To make a protein paste for livestock. Oh. That's primarily what it's going to be going for. People say, well, you know, fish farming might be the, the uh, mm-hmm. answer. But it takes 70 fish out of the ocean to raise one salmon on a salmon farm. So they're not making any contribution there. Plus, uh, we have a campaign right now called Operation Virus Hunter working with Dr. Alexandra Morton in British Columbia because what she's discovered, and the government's trying to suppress this, is the fact that these salmon farms are transmitting viruses and parasites to wild salmon populations. And uh, because they're heavily dosed with uh, antibiotics and hormones and all of this, and so because there's a lot of disease that comes into these uh, farms, and those diseases are now being transmitted to to salmon farms. We have discovered last year, we discovered the viruses, but the government still seems to want to suppress this information. They want salmon farms, they don't want wild salmon, because salmon farms are more manageable in in their opinion. And it breaks the laws too, but they don't care. For instance, if I were to take a piranha and stick it in a lake, that would be an offense. I mean, you're introducing an exotic species. But the salmon farmers are introducing an exotic species, the Atlantic salmon, into the Pacific, into Tasmania, into Chile, places where they have no, no, no place to go. And I've followed this for the last four decades, and it started like this. Well, don't worry, uh, they won't escape. Yes, they do. Well, don't worry, they won't breed. Yes, they do. So, you know, everything we predicted about it, it turns out to be true. But what I've discovered with industry is they just do one lie after another until that lie is disproven, and then they just go on to another lie. And that, because they don't really... Care. And that's the problem with, with humanity is that, uh, you know, we're basic. I, I, the word I have for us is homo arrogantus ignoramus, you know, arrogant and ignorant. Uh, and we choose to do that. But there really is no room on this planet for 7.5 or 8 billion uh, meat eating primates. You know, it's just completely a world out of balance. Yeah. And then on top of that, you have our incredible number of pets. Cats and dogs and things like that, and the amount of, uh, that they're eating from the foods. Cats, of course, can't eat uh, a vegetarian diet. Dogs can, but veg- cats just simply can't do it. And there's nothing wrong with cats, except uh, I think there's about a billion of them, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and, that, and that's causing problems. problem. And, of course, that also contributes to the destruction of wildlife, which is in the millions of birds killed every year by, by cats. Personally, I don't think people should have pets for the very simple reason that we've proven to be an irresponsible species. And uh, the cost of that is incredible suffering to all the dogs and cats in the world and everything because there are just too many irresponsible pet owners.
1: Yeah, and people still choose to buy pets when there's enough of pets and shelters that need homes and and we can hopefully um, address this problem by doing that. Um, You also talked about, you know, you were talking about the the oceans and how now we're starting to look for species lower down the food chain. And you know, partly, I'm assuming that is because about 80% of the fisheries have been exploited, 90% of top predators have been wiped out of the oceans. And we also, at the same time, the world, as people start to understand the impact of meat and dairy, at least when it comes to land animals on the environment or their health, or perhaps they're concerned about the treatment of animals in factory farms, a lot of people tend to then switch to just consuming seafood. Um, or adopting a pescatarian diet, assuming that's better for them, or they're given advice uh, from health experts that they need to consume fish for um, to get their omega-3s or for other health reasons. And, you know, fish, as you probably know, is 20 to 25 percent of the protein intake in most countries around the world. It's the most uh, traded food commodity on the planet today. But what we have right now is the oceans being pummeled, not only because of overfishing, because of greenhouse gas emissions, because of ocean acidification, you also on top of that have the problem of pollution, and not to mention plastics. So here we have this perfect storm really brewing, so to say, in our oceans that are impacting uh, the entire, uh, turning the whole balance of the ecosystems in there upside down. And on top of that, people are still choosing to consume seafood. My question really there is that in spite of this knowledge being widely out there at the moment, I still see a majority of um, environmental organizations still pushing forth the idea that sustainable seafood is an alternative. And I'd like to know why Sea Shepherd and you don't agree with that. And is, that, is sustainable seafood even possible? And can that feed the
2: world? There is no such thing as sustainable seafood in a dying ocean. I was actually raised in an East Coast Canadian fishing village, so I've seen this steady decline and diminishment. Fish which were once plentiful, nobody even remembers that they were there. Uh, we tend to view fish as uh, this one thing called fish. But every species is different. It takes four years for a salmon to reach sexual maturity, and then it dies. It takes an orange ruffy 45 years to reach sexual maturity. It can live to 200 years of age. Lobsters can live to be 200 years of age. They simply cannot keep up with the the demand. You know, that's one of the reasons salmon, for instance, are probably the most... um, if there's any near healthy fishery, I guess it would be salmon, West, uh, Alaskan salmon, but that's only because of the, they can keep up with the demand. Mm-hmm. But the av- most fish can't. And uh, the problem is, is we're also taking the fish out of the mouths of orcas and uh, dolphins and whales mm-hmm. and, uh, and seals, and their numbers are declining. We're having starving orcas in the northwest. We're probably going to have more shark attacks because we're just taking the food out of the mouths of the sharks, and that, and, and we, you know, wonder why those are. There's an increase. It's been a slight increase, but it's, you know, the, basically you're, you're looking at a starving ocean plastic pollution is, uh, anybody who eats fish has got plastic in their bodies because the plastic has actually been ingested by, by zooplankton. And, uh, that's consumed by fish and it goes right up the food chain. So people are eating plastic. It's microplastic and microplastic is the greatest threat right now, I think, to the survival of, uh, of marine biodiversity. So there's, uh, there's many, many threats, but, uh, I always find it funny. If you say, "Well, I'm a vegetarian. I only eat fish, which is like absurd, but, uh, that's a problem but the problem with the big organizations you know the big uh, conservation organizations is they are so afraid of losing support that they want to be all things to all people i was a sierra club director for 3 years and trying to get that vegetarian message across to the to, to the, the club was impossible they didn't want to hear about it they said well you know it'll cost us uh, you know half our membership or something so that's a problem they're interested in making money off it of just as the corporations are Sea Shepherd's position has always been uh, that we promote a vegan uh, diet. Our ships have been vegetarian from, well, 77 until 1995 and then became vegan after that. And we've demonstrated that that's not a problem. Uh, But we also take a different approach to veganism, too, is that we don't proselytize, we don't preach it. We don't demand that you have to be a vegan to be on our crew, but you have to be a vegan while you're on the crew. And people are introduced to it, and it's amazing how many of my crew have actually uh, become vegetarian or vegan just by simply being, and understanding they're not gonna starve to death. Yeah. you know. <laughs> and uh, so it's worked out really well for us, and I really believe you cannot be an environmentalist, you cannot be a conservationist unless you're vegan, or at least a vegetarian, but you can't be that. And uh, because it's just a complete contradiction on that, because this is a root of so many of, uh, of the problems.
1: Yeah, and even if you can find a sustainable fishery or, you know, on land, if you can find um, a pasture, a grass-fed farm or a ranch that does, um, does take care of the soil and, and raise animals in a way that is less destructive, it, how many people can really be fed? With, that, with, with those forms of meat or seafood. And I think that's one problem I see. And the second problem is that, when, at least when it comes to seafood, it, it's mind numbingly confusing in, in terms of what the standards are right now. If someone has to make a sustainable seafood choice and goes to a restaurant or even to a grocery store, it's nearly impossible. And most of the, even people selling the fish, they probably won't know where everything's from. And there may be some exceptions to this, And perhaps some people are able to make that choice, but if, as you pointed out, if your goal is to be a conservationist or an environmentalist, you have to be pushing the message that works for everyone and not just works for some people and live in maybe San Francisco or New York City that can find or get access to a certain type of fish that may be sustainable.
2: It is difficult to get that message across. I went to a a fundraising dinner at the Cannes Film Festival. It was a fundraising dinner for environmental groups, mm-hmm. but we were invited along. And uh, what was the the meal was um, was Chilean sea bass, one of the most endangered species, which is a, the the toothfish. And um, we ha- my wife and I had the vegetarian options, and they were serving it around. And this one woman says, "How come you're not having the fish?" I said, "Well, because right now we have a campaign going after the people who are poaching these fish, because almost half of the fish that you buy is illegal," and. Um, And so it's an endangered species. That's why we're not eating it. And she looked at me and says, but it's good. You should try it. (laughs) I mean, she couldn't get around what we were saying, really. The concept of endangered or the concept of extinction is just beyond their grasp. They don't want to to listen to that message because it conflicts with what they they want. It's like everybody wants to be an environmentalist, but nobody wants to actually sacrifice anything. To, to be an environmentalist. Uh, uh, they always want somebody else to do it. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's a very, very difficult to communicate this kind of knowledge. Humanity learns lessons through reactions. An environmental collapse, well, that's a good kick in the rear end. That'll, that's the, then people say, oh, my God, what are we doing? We better change things and everything like this. But it usually takes something like that, something that hits you personally. You know, that's, uh, that's hurt you personally. You know, people who have to get cancer before they actually see, whoa, well, the connection between that and smoking. Well, nobody told me that. Well, we have been hammering it into your head for like 50 years, and then, uh, you know, and then you die. My, my own father, for instance, died of lung cancer. And I remember when I was in high school, I said, you know, you got to quit smoking or you're going you're gonna to die. He said, I ah, will cross that bridge when we get to it. Well, the bridge came and he didn't make it over that. And that's just the way it is. You know, people do not want to listen to the truth. They just simply don't.
1: Yeah. And, you know, what what do you think about Ocean? You know, we're talking about conservation organizations out there and the way they approach things. And I understand, you know, they feel that pressure from their donor base. But have you, I, I know, you know, Sea Shepherd does what you do. And by no means can you really change what other people do. But what I fail to understand, and maybe you've tried this too, is why they don't... And this is not a knock against people are trying to uh, produce food sustainably. That's all, more power to you. That's great. If you can do that uh, and there are people who are going to buy your product. But if you're a conservation org, or if you have the word ocean or sea in your name, why wouldn't you at least recommend that people consume less seafood? Um I think because when you when you start to encourage people to consume seafood that is, uh, labeled sustainable, which is kind of unclear at this point, what really amounts to sustainable, and it keeps changing too. There's no clear standards. Why wouldn't they at least make that message? I mean, even as, assuming someone likes to eat seafood, they hopefully are not offended by that.
2: Well, there are clear standards, and the standard is don't eat seafood. There's no <laughs> sustainable seafood. There simply is not. Dr. Boris Worm and Dr. Daniel Pauly, who are the two most foremost fishery scientists in the world, say that by 2048 there won't be any fishing industry because there will not be any fish. You know, And, and they're, they're experts and they're respected experts, but people aren't listening to them. Um, yeah. in, in Japan, they don't want to listen to anything about uh, putting limits on fisheries. They do not give in an inch on that. And uh, the response to well, what if it goes extinct? Well, you know, then we'll deal with that when it happens. And that I sat down with some whalers uh, in uh, at the IWC conference, and I said, "What are you going to do when they go extinct?" Well, I guess we'll just have to uh, change the industry. You know? <laughs> we'll change it then. <laughs> yeah. Well, they don't want to do that. They, they want to s- suck out the most profits out of the, this resource then as they possibly can without any. Uh, concern about where this is where this is all heading that is why the human species will not survive actually I'm incredibly optimistic when people say why are you uh, very optimistic I said well because I studied uh, the the fact that we've had five major extinction events in the world we're now in the sixth major extinction event right now we're gonna lose more species of plants and animals in the next 65 years than we've lost in the last 65 million years and why aren't you um, pessimistic about that i said because i know it takes 18 to 20 million years to recover from a major extinction event which is nothing to the planet so 18 to 20 million years from now it's going to be a nice place we just won't be here <laughs> so the planet's going to be fine oh we're not it's not this is not about saving the planet it's about yeah. saving ourselves from ourselves it's about saving all the species we're going to take with us but yeah. the planet I mean, if the Permian extinction didn't wipe out all life on the planet, then we're certainly not going to do it because 97% was taken out in the Permian extinction 250 million years ago. And uh, so we're not going to accomplish that, but we're certainly going to have an incredible negative impact on that. But it's the most negative impact will be against uh, ourselves. We will not survive it. And uh, we are completely dependent on that. I mean, i got all these—Fox uh, Network gave me— um, we're, we're screaming at me about 10 years ago, so he said, Well Watson thinks that worms are more important than people. And I said, yeah, worms are more important than people. So aren't bees, so aren't trees, so aren't fish. They're more important for people than people for the very uh, fact that they can live without us. We can't live without them. So if they go, we go. If the bees go, then we don't have any agriculture. If trees go, then we've you know, got all these problems. So uh, we cannot survive with some certain species. We are completely and totally dependent upon their existence. Uh, you know, I had a guy at the University of Texas stand up and so, say, you know, well, we don't really need these other species, you know, we, we've we got uh, uh, artificial intelligence, we've got technology and everything. And I just said, I looked at him and I said, you know, when I look at you, I'm not looking at an individual. I'm looking at a symbiote orga- organism. There are about a thousand species of bacteria, between 700 and 1,000, on and in your body right now. And... If they go extinct, you go extinct. You don't live without them. They manufacture vitamins. They digest your food. They even clean your eyebrows and everything. And, uh, of course, a lot of students got a bit queasy about that because, again, they don't think about that. But one of the big problems right now is extinction of bacteria in our soils mm-hmm. through the Monsanto and everything else like that. We're rendering our soil to be in the same condition as the soil on Mars, which they have just discovered last week, cannot... Uh, produce you can't grow anything in it because there's no bacteria in it if we wipe out the bacteria in our soil then we have a real problem and it's not just the meat industry it's the it's agriculture agribusiness and everything the the spraying of uh, pesticides and Monsanto's seeds and all of these things like that which are are destroying the soil and uh, so you know we have to address all of these things
1: We'll get back to the interview after this quick announcement. Audible is offering listeners of this show a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com eatfortheplanet and browse the selection of audio programs. Download a free title and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com eatfortheplanet. That's audible.com slash eatfortheplanet and get started today. Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks and original audio shows from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine, and newspaper publishers. I love audiobooks because we lead busy lives, and reading usually ends up getting bumped off our priority lists. But I love how Audible makes it easy for me to optimize my time and listen to books and shows on the go. If you're looking for an interesting audiobook to get started with, I highly recommend the book Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. That's I-S-H-M-A-E-L by Daniel, Q-U-I-N-N. That book had a huge influence on me, and if you love the topics we cover on this podcast, I'm sure you will find it incredibly interesting. Ishmael begins with a newspaper ad that says, Teacher seeks pupil. Must have an earnest desire to save the world. Apply in person. It turns out the teacher in question is a gorilla. I won't say too much more, except that Ishmael teaches us what all humans must learn if our species and the rest of life on planet Earth as we know it wants to survive. Now back to the interview. So given, you know, it, we've been painting a very dark picture where things stand and, and perhaps where they're headed, but you've been doing this for over 40 years now. What gives you, what still gives you hope and What makes you want to get up every day and still keep fighting? Um, There has to be something to fight for. So what are you focused on and what makes you want to keep trying?
2: Well, I learned a very valuable lesson in 1973 that I was a medic with the American Indian Movement when we took over Wounded Knee in in South Dakota uh, to protest the the fact that the Fort Laramie Treaty wasn't honored by the United States. And... uh, so we're there, we're being shot at 20,000 rounds a night coming into the village. They wounded 46, killed two. Um, and I went to Russell Means, who was the leader of the American Indian Movement. I said, Russell, you know, we, we're surrounded by we got 2,000 federal troops. are shooting at us all every night. Oh, there's 350 or so of us. We don't have a chance of winning with these people, so why are we here? And he looked at me and says, well, we're not here because we're concerned about the odds against us. We're not here because we're concerned about winning or losing. We're here because it's the right place to be and the right thing to do. We don't worry about the future on this. We act in the present. And uh, what we do in the present will make a significant difference to how the future will be. But don't worry about that. In fact, the Lakota sum it up with the words, hoka hey, it's a good day to die. Meaning you take a stand and you don't. You don't be concerned about the consequences that stand as long as you believe that what you're doing is the right thing to do. Now, I also believe that the solution to an impossible problem is to find the impossible answer, and I believe that that can be done through a combination of uh, passion, courage, and, and imagination. In 1972, the very idea that Nelson Mandela would be president of South Africa was unthinkable and impossible, and yet that became possible so the impossible can become possible and but it really needs that combination of passion imagination and courage
1: and what have you seen out there that gives you that kind of hope have you whether it's through the work that you're doing but also other signs that people are finally starting to maybe wake up perhaps perhaps the internet in the last 15 years has really helped in getting people access to information. You know, I joke about this a lot with my team, is that if Greenpeace, uh, which you were a founding member of, were to start in, in the last few years, they would look a lot like One Green Planet, where we would use the power of online media to wake people up and share information and get them to be uh, passionate and excited about perhaps taking a stand against things that are very clearly wrong with uh, the way business is done today and the way we are feeding the planet and the way we are destroying and pillaging through our natural resources. What out there today gives you, you know, perhaps examples of innovation. I know we we started this conversation talking about technology, but perhaps whether it's activism, innovation in the industry, or uh, any interesting groups or individuals that are doing something that besides, of course, yourself and what Sea Shepherd is doing, that is giving you cause to, to really look forward at the future with some sort of hope again?
2: Well, I never said that I have hope. <laughs> I said that I am uh, i don't concern myself with that. Mm-hmm. I concern myself with doing what I can now to the best that I can do that. Greenpeace, by the way, started out as a, a media-savvy uh, organization. It, it was founded by communications majors, reporters, and broadcasters. That's why it became so successful, because we understood that we live in a media culture. Uh, it's sort of lost its way since then. I don't think they really understand uh, that, that connection. In fact, they don't even know their own history. And, uh, and almost all these organizations have a tendency to throw out their founders because they then integrate themselves into the, the culture that is part of the problem. Uh, I I have no use for large organizations. We keep Sea Shepherd small, and we keep it primarily volunteer organizations. We have right now at this moment 10 ships, and out on those ships are about 200 volunteers. And uh, that is the kind of courage and passion that we think can make a significant change. Um, So we also bring people from all walks of life. We don't demand, uh, you know, professionals. You know, Greenpeace is now all professional. You know, those guys on their ships get paid $20, 30 an hour, and, uh, you know, they're there because it's a job. Our crew are there because they're actually passionate about, about the cause. When I get criticized about that, they said, well, you know, you, you should have professionals out on those ships and not amateurs. I said, no, I, professionals don't have that passion. They can't get us to where we want to go. In fact, uh, Ernest Shackleton in 1911 was criticized in the London Times because his crew were all amateurs and not professionals. He says, I don't want professionals. I want, I want men with a passion is going to take me to where I, I need to go. And uh, the professionals aren't going to get me there. And uh, what's really interesting, though, is in 40 years of operations on our ships, we've never had a casualty. We've never had a significant injury. We've never caused any injuries and uh you know meanwhile the professionals are getting themselves killed all the time i think three whalers died in the southern southern ocean while we were going against them because of accidents and and problems like that so uh, i think one of the reasons for that is our crew are know that they're amateurs and therefore they take precautions which professionals sometimes just forget to take take those precautions but uh i i also feel that it's very important that Individuals from around the world are understanding that they can make a difference that they don't have to as Russell means say don't be concerned about the odds against you. Don't have anybody tell you you can't do it or you can't change things. The only thing that has ever changed anything in our um, societies has been the passion of individuals. You know Abraham Lincoln didn't end slavery that was the work of Wilberforce and Douglas and that. Women didn't get the vote because of President Wilson. All he did was sign the document. In fact, he was the man who opposed women all the way. He was the one who put them in jail. And then when they finally got the, the victory, he was the one who signed the thing, and now history says, oh, the guy he's the guy who gave women the vote. That's the way our society works. We give the credit to the people who actually oppose the people who are doing the credit. So, you know, we have to understand that if we're going to make a difference, we have to realize that we're not going to be well-liked. We're going to be jailed. We're going to, to get beaten. 200 environmentalists have died in the last year. Over a thousand have died over the last uh, decade. It's getting worse, more than the numbers are increasing. It's a very, very dangerous thing to, to do, but you won't really read much about it unless it's somebody famous or something like this. But uh, you know, like for instance, this year 49 uh, environmentalists were murdered in Brazil alone and you don't hear anything about that. If it's somebody like um, you know, Jairo Moro Sandoval who died protecting turtles in Costa Rica, that's well known because we really, really pushed it. The government was trying to sweep it under the carpet and everything. I put up a $30,000 reward to get, you know, for information leading to the conviction of his people who were responsible. Uh, you really have to push that because you won't find these deaths in the New York Times. You won't find it in the mainstream media because, well, they don't want to hear about it um, because there's a double standard. However, if a logger was killed by an environmentalist or a fisherman was killed by an environmentalist, that would be a front-page newspaper and everybody would be concerned about it uh, because that's the way they push it. It's the same with uh, standards. You know, we, we're always hearing about jobs, jobs. You know, people need jobs, you know. And I remember a few years ago, when I was wa- talking about the spotted owl in Oregon. They said, well, 50,000 jobs are going to be lost because of the spotted owl. I said, so what? You know, in the same period of time, 200,000 jo- pe- jobs have been lost to Boeing, AT&T, McDonnell Douglas, and IBM. Why? Because it's in the interest of the shareholders of those corporations. So jobs are not important. They only use jobs when the industry wants those jobs to be used as an excuse for getting what they they want. I mean if you're if you work at McDonald's, nobody gives a damn about your job. If you get fired, where's all the outrage? Nobody cares. They only care about jobs when it's going to impact the in, uh, the profits of the company.
1: Mm-hmm. So what what would you tell someone who's young and passionate about saving the planet and wants to do something good? And they are now in their early 20s and looking for what their next thing is going to be, where they're going to dedicate their life to doing something that they really care about. Where would you tell them to put their time and energy uh, in the next many years to hopefully make a positive impact?
2: I, I would tell them to find out what you're passionate about and then pursue that. Uh, for instance, uh, because of Diane Fossey, Mountain gorillas has uh, survived in Rwanda. The work that Jane Goodall has done with chimpanzees. David uh, Wingate, who is a biologist in Bermuda, because of him, the storm petrel, a little bird nobody's ever heard of, but that storm petrel has survived. It would be extinct if it wasn't for this one individual intervening. And so people can make a difference. They have to understand that they can make a difference. One of my crew members came to me in 1979, and he said, "You know, they're uh, they're torturing uh, chimpanzees in this lab in Maryland. And what can we do about it?" I said, "Well, Sea Shepherd's not going to do anything about it because." well, it's not our area of expertise, but why don't you do something about it? And he said, well, what can I do? I said, well, use your imagination, get in there. So he got, went there, got a job in the laboratory. He um, uh, videotaped all of the abuses and everything, went to the Washington Post and TV and, and exposed it, shut it down. But he not only shut it down, he founded the People for the Ethical Treatment for Animals, and that's Alex Pacheco. And so, again, it's one person can make a difference. I got a call from a guy back in 1981. He says, they're killing gray seals here in the Orkney Islands. What are you going to do about it? I said, well, I don't know. I'm on the West Coast of North America. here in Scotland. What are you going to do about it? So we helped him form Sea Shepherd uh, in Scotland. And he was very uh, committed. Uh, they went to the, where, the island where they were killing the, the seals. And they stepped out and literally ripped the guns out of the arms of the sealers and threw the rifles into the ocean. And they all got arrested. But... We made so much publicity in Scotland that we raised the money to buy that island, which today is a seal sanctuary. So that kind of action actually pays off. But people have to be prepared uh, for the sacrifices involved. For instance, right now I'm listed on the Interpol Red List by Japan and Costa Rica, Japan for protecting whales, Costa Rica for protecting sharks. Uh, Didn't damage anything, didn't hurt anybody. Uh, but I'm on a list, and this list is for serial killers, war criminals, and drug traffickers. I'm the only person in history to be put on the red list for conspiracy to trespass on a whaling ship and for stopping a shark finning operation, you know, where nobody was hurt and no, nothing was damaged. And, but that's kind of economic and political power that, that, that they have, that they can do this. So anytime you stand up and and, and and say, "Well, I'm an environmentalist, or I'm a conservationist, or I'm an animal rights person, and I'm going to make a difference," you have to be prepared uh, to be hit and and to be damaged. You know, if you're not, it's the same with the anti-slavery movement. You know, people died uh, building up that movement, and uh, civil rights, same thing. People died for that. Nothing comes easy, and uh, you just have to accept that. The biggest challenge, however, is we have to overthrow anthropocentrism this understanding that the entire universe revolves around the human being which it doesn't we have to go back to pre-agricultural biocentrism which we understand that we are a part of everything else that we are equal to all other animals we can't be better than them we're equal to them that's a very difficult concept to get across but human beings have built up in our society delusions and fantasies that we've become to believe you know religion being probably one of the the worst you know instead of accepting the fact that you're part of everything you now have to say well our God is better than your gods. you know and I remember somebody called Ricky Gervais he said well you know you're an atheist he said well everybody's an atheist he said what do you mean well there's you know 4,000 different gods and I just happen to believe in one less than you do so we're all atheists in that respect and I always talk to people. Say, "Well, you know, you're going to go to hell." I said, "Who's hell? Protestants are going to go to the Catholic hell. Catholics are going to go to the Baptist hell. Everybody's going to hell." You know, it all depends what you believe in. Well, what's the truth? What is the truth? I'll tell you what the truth. Is. The truth is what you see around you every day. The truth is the biodiversity that we're part of. The truth is the laws of ecology, the law of diversity, that the strength of an ecosystem depends upon diversity. The law of interdependence, that all those species are interdependent with each other, we need each other. The law of finite resources, that there's a limit to growth and a limit to carrying capacity. And what we've been doing is stealing the carrying capacity from other species sacrificing them to increase our numbers but more importantly to increase uh, our level of consumption which is probably more important than the numbers really because you know in a way the United States is more populated than say India because uh, the, the average American consumes 25 to 30 times the amount of the average uh, Indian so therefore we're actually a, a bigger offender as far as when it comes to consumption of, of materials. And, uh, you know, I just recently got criticized because uh, of my, my son having a baby. I've got two children. And uh, people say, well, how can you be against, uh, you know, advocate population control if you have that? I said, because the problem in our world today is not that you give birth to a child. The problem is you give birth to children who are apathetic, arrogant, and ignorant, and they don't give a damn. And uh, so the solution is not for every person who knows these things, who understands these things, to say, well, I'm not going to have a children, I'm not going to be part of the problem. That's actually counterproductive, you know, because I believe that a parent to be a parent is probably one of the most challenging things that you have to do. You have to be prepared to provide education, nurturing, love, and all of these things. And if you can't do it, you're actually that's the, the main problem. And uh, so I, you know, I I've dedicated myself to making sure that my children uh, are given that understanding and to become to have be brought up as a biocentric uh, point of view on that. And my eldest daughter's 37. It worked with her. I'm hoping now my son is nine months, so I'm hoping it'll work with him too. But it isn't all black and white. You know, you can't say I'm going to be doing this and you're going to be doing this. You can't say that. Uh, it doesn't matter if you, if you have six children but you brought them up as decent, loving, caring human beings, that's a greater contribution than people having children and not giving a damn about them. Like I said about the fishermen who said, well, I don't really care. You know, my mortgage will be paid. What's I got to do with me? You know, that's the kind of attitude that is causing the problems.
1: Right. I mean, uh, you're right. One individual, and you said that before, can make a tremendous impact. One individual can make a tremendous positive impact with their time and the effort that they put in. They can Decide very early in their life, like you did, that you were going to dedicate your life to uh, focusing on activism and direct action, and focusing on helping marine species. And what you've done with your life as just one individual amounts to way more than most people have done um, in their entire lifetimes. And then, secondly, in addition to using your time wisely and 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 trying to make a positive impact, it's how much you consume. I think if you bring a child into the world thinking that uh, you know. The answer to life and uh, the purpose of life is to acquire things and to um, and to acquire um, wealth and to uh, do that so that you can uh, you can impress people and uh, take some sort of a role of, of some sort of status in society. Then you're you're creating something that is draining resources. Um, not only because of their existence, but draining it way beyond that one individual should. I mean, the very fact that the bottom, I think, two, three billion of the planet in terms of population live on a few dollars a day. And it's really a a handful, I wouldn't say a handful, I would say it's really the developed world and a majority of people in the developed world that are consuming a bulk of our resources tells you that even, even in the world we live today where we've completely sucked out our resources and we're headed towards... Um, or a real cliff in terms of where the planet is headed, we still aren't able to provide for majority of the people around the planet. And in and, and parts of the world, people still are starving or lack access to fresh water. And you know, that's, if, if you can bring in people, you can inspire others, whether it's by, by giving a life or uh, by convincing someone that their time is more valuable if they apply it to something that can actually make a difference, you're then hopefully starting a chain reaction, and they'll inspire others. And hopefully, you know, I know I keep coming back to the word hope. Uh, I know it's it's using the time in a way that you can make the best impact. Where hopefully, most people will, uh, more people will do that, and we will end up in say thirty years from now in a much better place than we are today.
2: Also, you know, the media that we live in right now causes a lot of problems because it dictates our values, and. Uh, People are told what to wear, how to dress, how to behave, and what is of value. I mean, imagine for a moment going into Mecca and spitting on the black stone or walking into Jerusalem and attacking the Wailing Wall with a pickaxe or going into Rome and hitting the Pieta with a, with a hammer. You're going to be in a lot of trouble. In Israel you'd be shot in the back and uh, be torn to pieces in Mecca. And nobody really cares because you've attacked something which is sacred. You've attacked something which is of great value. But every day we go into the most beautiful and wonderful and mysterious cathedrals of the world, the rainforest of Amazonia, the Great Barrier Reef of Australia, and we totally desecrate and destroy these cathedrals. Nobody really cares. I mean, that's of much more value than a decrepit old wall in Jerusalem or a hunk of meteorite in Mecca. But our values are anthropocentric. They're not biocentric and that's where we have the, 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 this real problem. You know, a few years ago, a, a ranger in Zimbabwe was uh, severely criticized because he shot and killed a poacher who was about to kill a black rhino. And uh, you know, human rights groups attacked him. How dare you take a human life to protect an animal? And he said, I don't really understand the contradiction. If I was a police officer in Harare, and a man ran out of Barclays Bank with a bag of money, and I shot him in the head in the street and killed him, you'd call, call me a hero and pin a medal on me. So how is it that a bag of paper is worth more than the future heritage of the nation of Zimbabwe. And that was his response, which was pretty profound, but most people don't understand that because, well, you know, stealing money from a bank. Well, if you consider the natural world as a bank that is uh, holding the treasures in, for future generations, then it's exactly the, the same thing.
1: That's true. And if, you had, if someone had to give you the power to put in place three steps that could fix everything today, if you could, if if you can make three clear recommendations that the governments of the world would adopt, that people everywhere would adopt, um, and you could wave that magic wand and make it happen, what would
2: those be? Uh, to uh, you know, change uh, our attitudes from anthropocentrism to biocentrism, adopt a vegan diet, and uh, abolish the military. <laughs> I think that would solve most of the problems. I'm actually very conservative. Uh, you know, people call, you call me a radical. I'm not a radical, I'm a conservative. I was on a, a very right wing conservative talk show in uh, Fresno, California. And the guy called me a radical. I said, Don't call me a radical. I'm more conservative than you are. And he said, I'm a conservationist. You don't get more conservative than being a conservationist. Mm-hmm. And, he's, and I said, Come on, test me on my conservative values, or what you consider your conservative values. He said, Well, what's your position uh, on gays and women in the military? I said I'm totally opposed to it. gays and women shouldn't be in the military. For, military for a very good reason. Men shouldn't be in the military. You know, get rid of the military. And they said, well, "What's your you know physician on abortion?" I said, "Absolutely, totally opposed to postnatal abortions. All these unwanted, un, un, you know, abused children being brought in the world. You know, that's totally opposed to that. You guys don't give a damn about those babies once they're born. It's before they're born that, you know, that you're you're concerned about it." And, uh, oh, and they said, what's your position on welfare? Absolutely, totally opposed to welfare. All these corporate welfare bums with their hands out, you know, taking the taxpayers' money, you know, we're bailing them out. I mean, the biggest welfare bums in the world are corporations and banks, you know, but we don't really think about that. But I said, you guys are all in a mindset that, you know, it's individuals. Some poor, un, you know, single mother is, like, destroying your society when, in fact, it's the banks that are they're doing it. You're just using them as, as scapegoats. And the military, well, you know, what we spend on the military in this country alone could feed and provide water to every single human being on the planet. And if you did that, there would be no war, no reason to go to war.
1: Yeah. You know, I'd love to, you know, end over here by bringing back what we started off with in terms of, um, you know, technology to some extent has brought us here. Can technology save us? Um, there's been talks about artificial intelligence using that um, to help preserve uh, conserve species in the oceans to using technology to clean up the plastics in the oceans and I think we're on a race against time do you if it is happening is it happening fast enough what are your thoughts on that well I sort
2: of differ I don't believe technology is the answer I think it's uh, I think it's our our attitudes our philosophies I think we have to to get rid of this anthropocentric mindset that, that that's that, that proclaims ourselves to be lords and masters of everything, we have to get rid of that. How do you do it? I don't know if it's possible. You got to ban religion. You got to ban, you know, you can't do that because people are fanatic about it. But. Uh, I think that what we need is a collapse, a whole collapse, an economic and uh, hopefully a minor environmental collapse to the point where people will finally wake up and say, hey, you know, we're, we've been in this anthropocentric dream world for the last 8,000 years. It's time we woke up and recognize that we're part of this planet and we're not masters over it.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I, think, I, I don't think anyone could have put that better. So I'm going to end over there. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. And for uh, sharing your incredible wisdom with us. I um, really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Captain Paul Watts. Thank you. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening.